I think a lot of people, when they hear the word circular economy, think about a model that's trying to reduce waste and increase recycling. A lot of people sort of simplify it to that type of narrative. But but actually, for us, the circular economy has always been a a way of thinking about systems and system solutions. And the challenge really that companies have is to uh, create the business model of tomorrow while still operating the business model of today and to then manage that transition from one to the other. Welcome back to Net Zero, What's Innovation Got to Do With It? The podcast where we explore one of the critical ingredients for decarbonising our economies at breakneck speed, innovation. I'm Simon Ritalik. And I'm Nina Foster. And together we lead the Carbon Trust's Net Zero Intelligence Unit. So far in the series, we've covered why innovation is so important in the face of an urgent crisis, and also why we need to deploy innovation to rapidly scale up existing climate solutions. What will we be exploring in today's episode, Simon? Well, one phrase that's often used when talking about addressing the climate crisis is, no more business as usual. And that's what we'll be exploring today in our third episode, innovating to transform the way we do business. And more companies than ever are setting net zero targets. But as they work towards those targets, many businesses will be confronted with an uncomfortable reality that their business model is fundamentally incompatible with a net zero world. That's right. Many business models rely on patterns of production and consumption that the planet simply can't keep up with and for which technological innovation alone cannot provide the answer. To reach net zero, we'll need innovative new business models, which embrace different ways of designing, producing and using products and services. To help us explore how all of this is possible, we have two fantastic guests joining us today. We have Andrew Morley, Chief Executive Officer at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, the leading voice on circular business models, and Elaine Smith-Gillespie, who leads the Carbon Trust's work on the circular economy and business model innovation. Welcome, Andrew and Alain. Thanks, Nina. Thanks, Simon. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, a good place for us to start is to explore why companies need to rethink their, their business models in the first place and what the alternatives to business as usual might be. Andrew, clearly the Ellen MacArthur Foundation is, is well known for inspiring businesses and other organisations to reinvent themselves, which is no easy feat. Uh, why, after a career at McKinsey and other uh, well-known consulting firms, you decide to give all that up and uh, and try to, to throw yourself into addressing this thorny challenge? <laughs> well, I think the um, the interesting thing for me through my career was really observing uh, the relentless drive for year-on-year growth with uh, models that were essentially extractive economic models. So they really were relying on the use of finite materials that were essentially discarded and um, taken out of the economy in in very short order. And it always struck me that that was really quite a a challenging model to maintain over a long period of time. And, um, you know, I got to the point in my career where I felt that um, uh, I had learned an extraordinary amount by participating in that transformation through my career and 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 
really recognizing the the planetary limits and the you know extraordinary amount of waste i felt that it was um an interesting opportunity for me to apply what i'd learned to a different direction which was really towards an economy that could run in the long term by really transforming itself to eliminate waste and pollution keep materials in use and regenerate natural systems Thanks very much for that. We look forward to diving into some of the topics that you raised there. But before we do, Alain, I'm going to turn to you. Obviously, we know that businesses are critical to determining whether or not we reach net zero. After all, they make or sell most of the products which cause emissions. Could you explain, though, why business model innovation is essential for achieving net zero? Yes, well, in order to uh, match the scale of global emissions reduction that needs to happen, companies effectively have to uh, more or less halve the emissions that they currently have and by 2030 and to keep on driving that down over the following decade. So the scale of change that's needed really requires a, a, a substantial rethinking of how a company manufactures, produces, sells uh, products. Um, and all that uh, at the core will require a decoupling of a company's activities or our economic activities from environmental impact from carbon emissions, whilst at the same time ensuring that we still have thriving economies and societies. So that really requires a substantial rethink. And at the core of this issue, I think, is um, having a specific design intent around the products and services that a company manufactures, how they're, how they're sold, how they're used, the business model itself, and also the wider system change. And regardless, all companies will need to be part of that wider change. And, and Alain there, you just talked about the importance of decoupling the business model from mm. um, uh, resource intensity. And that, of course, touches on circular economic um, models. And that's really what we want to zero in on today is the ability of businesses to transform into circular businesses. So Andrew, if I could come to you on this as a leading voice in the field, um, can you explain what the circular economy is and how that relates to business model innovation? Sure. Um, I think a lot of people, when they hear the word circular economy, think um, about um, a model that's trying to reduce waste and increase recycling. A lot of people sort of simplify it to that type of narrative. But but actually, for us, the circular economy has always been a, a way of thinking about systems and system solutions. And what we're essentially promoting is the idea of, of uh, the circular economy as a framework for system solutions that really are based on three fundamental principles. Um, the first one is to, to eliminate um, materials that are not necessary uh, to be added into the economy and to eliminate toxin, uh, toxic materials and uh, problematic materials from the economy uh, to essentially reduce the unnecessary materials. Uh, the second is to circulate, which is to keep the materials that we do need in the economy in the economy for longer at their highest value for us long as possible uh, at their highest utilization. So that includes um, all of the things that would, all the levers that would, would keep uh, materials in the economy, such as reuse, repair, remanufacturing, recycling ultimately. But, you know, all of those things that I mentioned before, um, and, and they, uh, if you think about reuse and remanufacturing, um, they require 
a a collaboration across the value chain to get products back after they've been used and to be able to repair them, remanufacture them and keep them in use longer. Um, and the third principle is, is about uh, uh, regenerating natural systems. And this is super important because a lot of people, again, think of the circular economy as really only relating to technical materials and how they're used in the economy. But what we're promoting is this idea of, of technical materials and the biosphere or the technosphere and the biosphere. And that if we keep materials in use for longer at their highest value, we lower the demand for new raw materials. So we leave space for nature in that way. But we also lower the demand for energy in the system. That is that we're actually maximizing the return on invested energy that we put into those materials and products in the first place. So we make space for nature on the on the one hand, but then we want to actually design into the economy nature positive intent. So again, it's eliminate, circulate, regenerate, and and all by design. So it's not you know how we deal with things after they've been used, but how we design this intention into the system from the get go. What are some of the most exciting or even unexpected examples that you've seen of businesses actually transforming into circular ones? Well, I think there's there's sort of two ways to think about this. There's the the smaller startup innovators who are um, developing new product service system solutions, and there's literally hundreds and hundreds of these, you know, and, and they range across a very broad field because you know what we're talking about is pretty much every sector in the economy having an opportunity to apply this thinking. So that ranges from you know, washing machines and refrigerators in your house to the plastics packaging that you get your food in, the food itself and how that's grown, uh, the cars you drive, the buildings you live in. So it's, you know, the clothing you wear. If you think about the topic of clothing and fashion, the, the potential for changing business models from one where you buy very cheap clothing that you use once or twice, they sit in your wardrobe for ages and then you throw them away effectively. This is a the, the fast fashion sort of disposability of clothing has grown hugely over the last several years, such that at the moment, you know, there's a, there's a dump truck of clothing going into landfill or incineration every single second. So it's a staggering amount of waste. And, and you know, we found in plastics... Uh, and in fashion, that the the extent to which we are keeping those materials, the cotton, the polyesters, the the plastics packaging, the extent to which we're keeping them in in the system is really really low. So you've seen the innovation in fashion where you've got uh, reuse models and resale models emerging, and there's a number of these that you know companies like Rent the Runway who have become. Uh, what's referred to as a unicorn in terms of being a billion-dollar business uh, in very short order, and there's several of those. There's others, you know, around um, plastics packaging that are fairly prominent at the moment. There's a company called Nopla, which uses seaweed for uh, as an alternative for creating packaging, and uh, you can eat it, you can, you can coat uh, paper with it, so it takes plastics right out of the equation. So there are lots of examples in, in startups, but we're also seeing 
uh, interestingly, you know, the major companies, the major food manufacturers, uh, the major packaging manufacturers innovating and spending literally billions of dollars on innovation and new systems for uh, circularity. So you've got both ends uh, of the big players and the small players. I think it's super interesting, that mix, because um, big companies often struggle with, struggle with the innovation and, and, and adoption of those ideas, um, whereas the small companies can move very nimbly and grow very quickly. And I think, we're, you know, getting the balance of both, the, the ability to potentially acquire or to learn from the startups and then take those into very big businesses who can then scale it globally is really, really quite fascinating. Clearly, the benefits are there from an energy point of view, climate point of view, broader sustainability point of view of a circular economy. But what's in it for individual companies? What are the sorts of benefits that you've seen circularity bring um, at a sort of company level that, that means there's a powerful business case for them to do this? Over the last uh, 10 years or so, we've seen a, a variety of really quite interesting business cases and, and business rationales for this thinking. Um, you know, if you looked at uh, Renault probably seven or eight years ago, maybe even a little longer, maybe uh, 10, when we had a, a, um, a spike in steel prices globally, uh, what they were doing was uh, looking at the remanufacturing of their um, their motors, their engines in France and the uh, factory in Choisy. And um, this was uh, essentially taking an engine block and instead of, you know, trashing it or scrapping it and then recycling it, that is, you know, expending a huge amount of energy to melt the metal and turn it back into a casted block, they were remanufacturing the engines so they were essentially taking a, a used engine, they were putting, replacing any parts that needed to be replaced in it, but retaining the vast majority of it in its original form. So radically reducing the amount of material inputs, energy inputs, water use, etc. cetera. Uh, and at the time, uh, that was one of the most profitable parts of Renault's business. It's, it's remanufacturing was, you know, extraordinarily profitable. And you see companies like Cat, Caterpillar, John Deere, Many of the industrial players uh, in the mining space and heavy equipment use remanufacturing as an example, and it's it's extremely profitable. That's an interesting example, um, but there are you know there are there are numerous other ones where we're seeing companies who are trying to essentially um, de-risk their value chains by establishing um, more integrated relationships across their value chains. So COVID really woke up a lot of uh, companies uh, and um, about their supply chain risks and the international trade risks, etc. So you're seeing um, companies sort of rethinking their value chains and their relationships with their suppliers, and this is quite interesting as well because you, if you are able to get uh, change the business models where you're where you're instead of just purchasing your uh, raw materials on a commodity basis, you're thinking about them in terms of the long-term resilience of your supply chain. So a good example is in the food space with companies who are now investing much more closely with their farmers and sort of working out how they can ensure that they've got uh, more regenerative food production that is more viable in the longer term, more resilient to climate change and more resilient in terms of creating community value 
Thanks, Andrew. I mean, you've just outlined so many reasons why a business might start rethinking its business model in, in this direction, not just for the good of the climate, but also thinking ahead to their, their own long-term value creation as well. Um, and some great examples of sectors in terms of fashion and consumer electronics. Elena, I wonder what you think of those sectors that Andrew has picked up on. Do you think those are the sectors that are most ripe for the circular economy or are there any others that you think are really well positioned for this kind of innovation? Well, well I, share, I share Andrew's view that uh, all sectors have uh, the potential to tremendously benefit from uh, this type of business model change and uh, finding better ways to create value and to give value to end customers uh, is a really big part of, of the case of doing so. Uh, but to add to some of the sectors that Andrew mentioned, those we may not think of uh, necessarily as also having challenges for um, improving resource efficiency or decarbonizing are, for example, the renewable sector. So the renewable sector is absolutely essential for decarbonizing the rest of us, of what we need to do. Uh, but this huge shift that we're going to see from, and we need to see from fossil fuel to renewables, will be basically shifting uh, resource intensity from fossil fuels, but still towards uh, materials. You know, of course, you need a lot of materials, a different wide variety of materials, many of which are environmentally sensitive or have created environmental damage upstream, as Andrew was mentioning in the supply chains. Um, so whether it's batteries or, or wind or solar, and of course, what will happen to these things at the end of their life? You know, if we're, if we're rolling out reams of solar panels around the world, what will happen to that at the end of life? Or batteries, for example, the chemicals in there. So we are seeing increasingly now companies who are starting from a design mindset from the very beginning. They're designing in uh, a, a better business model to ensure that they have more custody, uh, ownership or, or visibility of their products throughout their life. And uh, we have you know, programs with a number of companies in these different sectors, and they're now becoming more, more conscious of that fact. The oil and gas sector, clearly critical in all of this. Uh, is circularity appropriate for them? Are there limits to, 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 to the circularity model when it comes to oil and gas, do you think? It's going to take a while, um, but it's pretty clear that we need to get away from burning things if we're going to reduce uh, you know, carbon um, in the atmosphere. What we have done over the years is to really promote the industrial and business innovation agenda uh, because that is where the solutions are really going to come from. But... You've got, to, you've got to make the distinction between the companies and the businesses that are investing heavily and trying really hard to find innovative solutions um, from the others who are not, who are just simply, uh, you know, biding their time and, and you know, and maximising their profits through the extractive cycle. And um, we have to get policy aligned towards the front-running innovators to help them to be able to move further and faster. And we need to level the playing field and start to raise the bar for the laggards. And I think um, there's lots of examples now where we can really see the, uh, the front-running businesses, whether they're, you know, whichever sector they're in. There are, there are, there are leading examples where companies are innovating their business models, their product service systems, investing hugely in doing that. And they need, they need regulatory help to be able to do that more. And they need to be, need the economics to work through the levelling of the playing field. 
because you can't have, you know, companies who are investing in very, you know, very significant transformations being penalised because they're not able to match the economics of the extractors, the people who are not doing that. Andrew, thanks a lot. You touched on the role of government there. I think it's probably a good point to to, to pivot to that. Um, I know that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation set out five universal policy goals for enabling circularity. Can you outline what those are for us, please? The first one was really this point around stimulating design for circular economy. That's essentially the, the, the point of saying this is not a waste and recycling issue alone. It's about stimulating design of solutions and that uh, takes many forms, you know, the way in which we um, educate, uh, you know, in education, how we, we orient new engineers and designers to this topic, how we can uh, stimulate um, innovation and research and innovation through government expenditure. So it's policy and regulation, but it's all about shifting the focus to the redesign of product service system solutions aligned with the principles I mentioned. Um, the second goal is is really around uh, making the economics work. And this is the point I was making earlier about ensuring that, that we are, through policy and regulation, favouring the regenerative circular solutions in a way that uh, allows companies to innovate in that space and not be disadvantaged. The, the other one is uh, around investment uh, for infrastructure and for uh, innovation and for uh, for learning, for skills. So uh, we should be, you know, governments should be investing specifically in those things. Um, the other one is, is around um, establishing collaborations between public and private sector. So as I said, a lot of the, um, the innovation is and must come from private sector, but it needs to be done in consultation. You know, it needs to inform policy in a way that, uh, policy can keep up with and and actually uh, align towards. The other one was about uh, managing resources to preserve uh, preserve value, which is again to put policy and uh, regulatory uh, incentives in place for things like reuse, repair, remanufacturing, resale, etc. So those are the five: so st- stimulate uh, design, um, make the economics work, invest in infrastructure and uh, innovation skills. Um, collaborate for systems change and uh, manage resources to preserve their value. You've just outlined there, you know, quite how many different actors are involved in this transformation. Um, Could you give us an example of a time that you've brought industry players and governments and any others together to, to create that enabling environment for circular economic models? Yeah, I think... I think a really good example is um, what we've been working on in the plastic space over now many years. Um, what we did was we created a uh, an initiative called the Global Commitment. We originally had a group of around 10, 10 companies that came together around this topic and said, uh, you know, we need to create a set of um, definitions, a vision, a reporting mechanism um, a, uh, a, a a program office for sharing information and learning in, in, into a challenge. And we created the, the global commitment, which was set off in 2017. We've just done a report on, on the effectiveness of that um, voluntary commitment by leading companies. As I said, we started with a small group. It grew to 
well over a thousand participants. And what they did was they set um, deliberately set a an audacious and somewhat unreasonably ambitious objective that by 2025 they would only have they would only place on market recyclable, compostable, or reusable packaging. And an important thing there was, you know, you had to have the definition of what each of those things meant. So there's a working definition established and, and a timeline and measurement, et cetera. So they've made huge project progress on this over the years. Um, but what's really interesting about it is that you've got innovation within the actors themselves who, who in five years have taken off market around uh, 3 million tonnes of virgin plastics, the, the signatories of the commitment, which, which essentially equates the, the entire plastics packaging of the United Kingdom off market wow. annually, um, you know, in perpetuity. That equates to around one barrel of oil uh, remaining in the ground every two seconds through avoided plastics. So that's a pretty big shift as a voluntary commitment uh, by these signatories. Why that's super important is that that the leading actors showed policymakers what's possible, and it, and that's informed many of the national roadmaps, and it's now informing the uh, global commitments. I'm sorry, the the uh, the global treaty for plastics that is uh, in process at the moment, and you've got a group of of high ambition uh, businesses, the, the a business coalition that's actively trying to inform policy to say these are the things we need to get in place, uh, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's materials design, whether it's uh, financing, etc. So so that type of convening and, and the, the, the shape of that commitment was really very deliberate to be able to both drive private sector innovation and inform policy um, at the same time. Andrew, you've given us a great example there of the, the, the power of voluntary agreements and coordination across players. Alain, I'm going to ask you, do you do you think that's all well and good, but actually time's come for regulation? What role do you think do you see here for regulation to to accelerate the 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 the, the move to a more circular economy? Regulation certainly has its has its place, uh, and I think as was referred earlier on, one of the uh, aspects is that it needs to be fair. It needs to uh, ensure that uh, everyone's operating on a on a balance, uh, sorry, on a on a level playing field. Um, and many of the companies that we we work with uh, actually often actively ask for better regulation and ambitious regulation, as long as everyone else is held to that same standard as well. So I think it is a very powerful driver and it's something that uh, I think is needed to really sometimes force that internalization of external costs uh, that companies need to take into account and raise the standards. And many times these have significant benefits for consumers, for end customers. Actually, they all really point in that direction and for society as well. So it definitely has its place, mm. um, but it's best done in collaboration, I think, with industry mm. uh, because then you get informed regulation and you also have industry that is buying into that whole process. Great. We might come back to that theme of collaboration. But quickly, Alain, obviously, clearly governments need to do a lot more to, to help ensure... The, the conditions are right, the incentives are there, and even, as you mentioned, the regulations there to drive change. But companies don't need to wait for that, do they? They can take action now. Can seem quite overwhelming for some. Where, where would an individual company start on this journey of reinvention mm. from your perspective? 
Yes. Uh, so uh, companies really need to be anticipating what's going to happen in the future. Uh, I think there are learnings from past discontinuities, uh, whether it's the advent of the Internet uh, you know, over 20 years ago um, or, or others that we've seen since. And currently we are probably undergoing also another revolution when it comes to, to AI and, and, and the likes. Um, the advantage, however, that companies have is, is they, and we all know what needs to happen. You know, so uh, we, we've been forewarned uh, now for, for a long time uh, and uh, companies have some time to start putting things into action. And so companies need to think about, well, what needs to happen and really work back from the endpoint and put in place a strong vision, uh, a strong set of uh, uh, targets. And the challenge really that companies have is to uh, create the business model of tomorrow while still operating the business model of today and to then manage that transition from one to the other. And it's a huge challenge for companies that are established as opposed to startups who can start from, from a blank slate. And so um, that, it, that highlights really the importance of leadership in a company. And uh, we see those companies that have taken a, a strong stand or those where the CEO, the senior leadership is really taking that on board. And then that percolates down into the rest of the organization. Uh, one example uh, that I'm, I'm sure Andrew will be familiar with as well is that of, uh, of Philips many years ago took a, a bold target that I believe they wanted to tie 25% of their revenues to circularity and that no new products could be sold anymore if they didn't adhere to the company's eco-design uh, principles. And uh, that kind of target is very powerful because then it gives the permission or in the, indeed the incentive for the rest of the organization to fall into place and to start innovating towards that goal. So what companies need to do is effectively where the external pressure doesn't yet exist, get, to give them th themselves that innovative pressure mm. internally. Mm. Um, and then, of course, put the resources behind that, you know, bring teams to coalesce around those goals. And every single business unit, every single function within the company then starts to can start aligning behind that. That's fascinating. So clearly go goes far beyond the role of the sustainability team within a company. Absolutely. Yeah. The CEO, even the board yeah. needs to be It's a whole organization change yeah. that needs yeah. to happen. Yeah. Can I just add to that? I, I mean I think that the other the other thing that we've consistently seen over the years that is that, you know, this is a, a huge education and learning agenda. Um, because it's a journey that that you know, companies are going on and departments in companies and different part, different departments in companies are going on. So, you know, I think your question about where to start is, is the point is to start and to treat it as a learning journey. Uh, and I think the, what we've found is that these collaboration platforms or, or finding ways to, to collaborate, you know, pre-competitively and across value chains is, is hugely helpful because there's, uh, there's so many common learning challenges and um, uh, opportunities that exist through uh, sharing, you know, as, as everybody transforms that um, companies should seek them out and they, they should really, you know, see this as a, as a, a fundamental transformation that's going to take, you know, many years and it, and it does touch every part of the organisation, as Elaine said. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, collaboration seems to come up in every podcast episode we record about innovation, but 
especially when it comes to the circular economy and I think especially when it comes to the supply chain of any company that's looking to transform in this way. So, Alain, I wonder if you could explain a little bit about why that collaboration with suppliers is so important to business model innovation. Hmm. Well, in the context of, uh, of climate the I think it's probably also applies to nature nature based impacts as well. The vast majority of the impact, especially in the manufacturing sectors, lies in the supply chain. Uh, <clears throat> so, whatever change needs to happen has to involve the supply chain in some form or other. Uh, suppliers will right now be geared towards supplying the current incumbent business model. So any company that's trying to change that business model needs to bring on board the suppliers. Where, where we see uh, a lot of potential and, and great practices when companies col collaborate with the suppliers. And in many cases, as we know, the nature of the relationship can be quite, uh, quite conf um, you know, can cut cost-based, for example. Uh, but there's a need to then create a new space to explore new ideas and to look at how shared value can be created. So there's great examples of companies that open up really the process to the suppliers, who actually seek the suppliers for the solutions as well that they may not be able to find on their own, and to co-design, co-create, uh, and co-invest in the process, and then also uh, co-benefit, so to, to share in the, in, in the revenue or share in the value that's being created. And uh, you know we've seen this in in, in different sectors, uh, certainly in 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 some of the work and the collaborations we're seeing now. For example, in in the renewable space and offshore wind, we're looking at companies that are collaborating. Uh, I think Andrew is mentioning here pre-competitively. So we have uh, in in our current program that we're running at the moment called the uh, it's a joint industry program for uh, sustainability in the offshore wind sector. Uh, Eleven or twelve of the biggest developers in the world are coming together around a common challenge, uh, which is to decarbonize the supply chain. Uh, because they realize they need to decouple ultimately to be more resilient. And they're working uh, together to create a set of common standards, ways of increasing transparency in the supply chain for data, uh, and then also to uh, drive the innovation that they see is needed to bring down emissions going forward. So uh, that's uh, that that will be, as, as Andrew said, you know, it, it takes time. This will be a multi-year process. But what's really important, I think, is to just accelerate as much as possible. There's no straight journey. It's lots of twists and turns and you have to learn. So the quicker you learn, the quicker you fail, the more you can actually start driving that change. So supply chain collaboration, clearly vital. Another really vital piece of this seems to me at least to be consumer engagement. Clearly, for a circular economy to become reality, we need consumers to be buying less, sharing more, handing products back to be refurbished, etc. Um, how do we leverage the power of, of the consumer, Andrew, from your perspective? What do we need to do to do more and better at that? Well, um, at the risk of being controversial, I, I would say um, that's not really the problem. The, the problem is that we need to be innovating to provide people with better product systems solutions that they can access and use uh, that meet a need uh, and are affordable and they're convenient. Um, because um, short of policy changes, and, and policy changes really work. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the plastics bag, the plastic bag 
5p charge that was introduced in the UK a few years back, it completely took them off the market in, in no short order. And the take up of reusable bags by people is just a no brainer. And people are very, you know, happy to do it. In fact, um, from what I can see, it's not a, it's not an issue. Um, but in many cases, we, we, we just have to really develop better solutions for people that they can participate in. Um, and, you know, packaging is a great example and, and the, the, the need for an opportunity that reuse represents more broadly. I mean, I think every one of us has got a cupboard full of packaging, you know, fast food takeaway containers and bottoms and tops and nothing fits together. You open the cupboard, it all falls out. You, you, you know, repack it and, you know, a week later it's a jumbled mess again. I mean, we all experience in our kitchens every single day the dilemma of plastics packaging. And, you know, if we were to do some simple things like design, put design standards in place and to converge on bottoms and tops that fitted, for example, develop systems where you could return packaging easily and conveniently, you know, as a, as a take reverse logistics of Amazon deliveries that take away the packaging with them or you know various ways in which you can go to your supermarket and easily refill things or buy concentrates you can drop into refill bottles and you know that it so there's a lot of innovation that's you know being developed in that space but it needs to be pushed harder and we need to work the problem harder we need policies and and regulations to support it um and you know not not bang on about you know making people feel guilty and uh, and how they should you know con- this is a consumer problem i mean the fact that we call people consumers is a problem and you know us around the table here who are a fairly well educated bunch you know we're trapped into this mindset that it's a you know we we treat people as consumers and we say it's their problem it's not really their problem it's it's what we put on the market and how we how we market and we 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 advertise and the system service solutions that we offer. Well, let, let's get on to that system because it strikes me that we need a system that has a lot more transparency in it now in terms of material flows around the economy. Um, so, you yep. know, businesses are going to need to know much more about their use of natural resources. They're going to need to know how their products are made, where they end up how and where they might be reused or refurbished. Um, And it would be good to discuss how we might create a system like that. Um, Creating creating a system where material flows are tracked, does that happen at a a business level, an industry level or a city level? Um, What do you think, Andrew? I I think it's all of the Mm -hmm. above. Increasing transparency is, you know, a huge part of the um, solution. And and I think what's encouraging is that through digital and AI and other transformative, transformative technologies now, we are seeing a, a vast increase in transparency. Um, and that there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done in that space. And, uh, you know, what we, what we have seen with the global commitment in plastics is we now for the first time have uh, the the annually reported um, volumes on market by companies who are participating. They're telling us how much 
what's the volume that, of plastics they're producing, how much of it is using recycled content, what are they investing in reuse, uh, how are they actually uh, um, looking at compostables and other, other materials innovations. So that's been reported and, and fully open annually now for the first time you know, it didn't exist uh, more than five years ago, it, 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 which is remarkable because we've been talking about reduce, reuse and recycle for 40 years. Uh, and we only in the last five years have had the transparency of the signatories of the global commitment to actually talk about what, in fact, they're doing in that space. You know, and, and I think we need to help people uh, be able to make better choices of the solutions that, that emerge. And, you know, that, that spans from everything that we do in terms of advertising, labelling, but also, you know, what we put on our cereal boxes to help people understand the story of their food. I mean, you know, really basic stuff. And, you know, I, I think there's a combination of, of regulatory mandated standards and, and reporting and independent um, independent certifications and those things, but it's also the way in which, you know, companies can tell their stories as well because most people in the public don't know what regenerative ag agriculture actually is but they they do understand that you know we need to be pro-nature in some way fantastic andrew thank you um we are nearly out of time but before we wrap up um i wanted to ask you both a final question what are the three things in your daily life that you hope will become more circular in your lifetime alain starting with you at a personal level, uh, three things that um, I find myself thinking about a lot is firstly around the food that I, I buy and that I make for myself, for my family. I think that the food system needs to radically change in the future, not just to reduce the carbon impacts, but also um, to address the harm to nature um, and uh, harm to, uh, to, uh, to health as well. So I really hope that that will be addressed uh, very quickly. Um, the second area, uh, which is a, a, a personal pet, uh, a pain point of mine is um, that I would love my electronic devices to last a lot longer than they currently do. Uh, so I, I certainly hope that will be um, improving. And uh, thirdly, uh, I uh, must say I, I am... Um, a, a, a bit of an online shopper, like perhaps most of us, uh, uh, and also, um, you know, I go to the supermarket a lot to do errands and packaging is a very big issue that I think uh, needs to be dealt with. Um, making sure that packaging is not, or things are not overpackaged, um, but also um, that it's dealt with in the right way as well. So um, that's something that you know, I think we all face. Great. Thanks, Ellen. And Andrew, how about you? Yeah, I'm with Ellen. I, I, Food is a big one for me. Um, plastics packaging, I think, is a, you know, in the next 20 years, if we don't sort this out, we're in really big trouble. We need to work out, you know, better ways of, of getting things to people. And um, so hopefully we can make some real progress on that. Um, I think the third thing for me is actually related to the transformational technology space. Uh, you know, we're at this moment where, we're seeing an you know, explosion of artificial intelligence possibilities and digital. And I, and I would hope that we see, you know, some fundamental breakthroughs in material science in the ways in which we are able to see transparency and, and, you know, imagine a world where you can go into super and you point your phone at whatever it is and it tells you exactly where it came from and exactly what's in it and exactly how good it is for you and for the environment and uh, the world. 
Andrew, and uh, on that note and vision for the future, a big thank you very much. That's all for episode three of Net Zero. What's innovation got to do with it? Big thank you to our guests, Andrew Morley and Ellen Smith-Gillespie. Um, I can see huge potential for this more circular world where businesses can thrive and consumers' needs are met, but not at the expense of the planet. And for business leaders too, it all starts with rethinking the very essence of what their business offers. Yeah, I agree. And we're far off from a fully circular economy, but I think what I took from this discussion is that businesses can implement changes within their own organisation and also beyond that with their suppliers. Um, and, and those initial steps can already drive quite a big impact. Absolutely. Well, we've got one final episode left in our series, which means only one more type of innovation to discuss. Yes, and Andrew actually just picked up on it at the end. We're going to be talking about promising new technological innovations that are emerging to help us reach net zero. And we'll be talking about how we can get those off the ground in time. I'm really looking forward to that discussion. And if you are too, do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow The Carbon Trust on social media to be the first to hear when it comes out. Until then, thanks very much for listening. Listening.